Hey everyone, I'm Sam Shaheen and you're listening to Gear 30 on the Blister Podcast Network. Earlier this week, I visited Scarpa's surprisingly large North American headquarters to talk with CEO Kim Miller. Kim gave me a tour of their distribution center and repair shop before settling into their footwear line showroom. We had a great conversation that we'll be releasing in two parts, both of which will be available soon for you to watch on our YouTube channel. In part one, Kim and I discussed his impressive career in the outdoor industry, Scarpa's philosophy towards ski boot design, their position within the market, the ins and outs of the new Mistrali XT, Kim's thoughts on boot binding compatibility, and more. We'll be releasing part two in January, where we'll talk about a lot more, including a mysterious gift-wrapped boot that was sitting on their showroom wall. But now, here's part one of my conversation with Scarpa North America CEO, Kim Miller. So I'm really excited today. We're here at Scarpa North America headquarters in Boulder with Scarpa CEO, Kim Miller, and we're here to talk about ski boots. How are you doing today, Kim? I'm doing great. And uh, thanks for the invitation to sit with you and talk about ski boots. It's one of my favorite topics. I do want to say uh, that I really love your product. I really love your work. And that's a really uh, big part of the reason why I want to do this with you guys. In fact, I, I brought my my copy of the, <laughs> of, of the current book and with your name written on and, it too. And, and I wanted to point out that if 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 you put your you have to put your name on it, that means that it's a really it's a hot commodity around the office and it will be eventually ripped off from you. So that, that shows how important this, this is to me, but it's, it's really one of the most comprehensive and well put together publications about not just the product, but the sport, the trends in the sport and bringing it all together, connecting it all together and, and really from writers for writers. And I I really like that. And um, it's a joy to read. In fact, uh, my colleagues in Europe, the, the, one of the things they always ask for me to bring over in the fall is the blister because it is, it is the same to them. So my compliments and thanks for for the work you guys do. Well, those are very kind words. I feel like I'm blushing. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. Well, I just, uh, I think it's important to recognize good work when I see it. And we need to work together because the work we do is so important to us. And trying to propagate that and communicate to the world about what we're doing and why we're doing it, how we're doing it, those are the things that really matter to, I, I think, a brand like like us. You remember, we're, we're family-owned company. We are still a family-owned company. We've, we've been doing this a long time. And uh, presentation is really important. The quality is really important. But we really put our heart and soul into our products. And you're sitting in a room full of all of our products right now. It's 360 degrees from trail running to ski boots. So you get a real sense of kind of the the spectrum that we're trying to make products for the sports and, and uh, every one of those categories, people really depend on our products and on not only on the performance, but the durability and the comfort. So it's, it's a pleasure and really um, an honor to be able to do that, especially for the people that, that, that use our stuff and uh, you guys being some of those people. So. Yeah, well, it's been really fun being in here. You know, I, I, I'm i typically sample size in shoes, so there's, <laughs> there's a bunch of stuff I'm tempted to steal walking around here. <laughs> I, mean, I think you have about 130 opportunities to try yeah, something. You, you wouldn't here. even probably notice it was gone for a few <laughs> days at least. <laughs> I wouldn't for sure, but somebody might. <laughs> 
Um, so great. Let's 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 get into it. Um, Please. So one of the unique things about you is your really extensive background in the ski industry. Can you talk a little bit about that background and how that led to your current role as CEO here at Scarpa? Snow sports, mountain sports have been my life. It has been the most uh, the thing that I was most passionate about, and and somehow I was able to to blend together my passions with my work. And it really started as a, a retailer and as a guide and working my way through into having my own shop in Denver. And eventually I sold that business and I went to work for, at the time, Chenard Equipment. And then uh, I was a founder of uh, on the founding team for Black Diamond and an employee owner and was there for almost 18 years. And wow. I spent, I, I call it the University of Black Diamond. I, I did a lot of jobs and I learned a lot of things there, but it really just, doors kept opening and opportunities kept uh, coming before me. And ones that I, I really, really thought were important it's important to me all the time wanting to figure out a way to be outdoors and practice the things I really enjoyed in the mountains while working on those things. And they really came together when it, when it started to, when we start, start talking about skiing and climbing because uh, I was really active. I'm really active still in the sports. And when you start p pulling together in a brand like Scarpa or Black Diamond, trying to to make a product line involves so much more than a lot of people probably could imagine. And building good products, especially ones that people depend on so much, whether it's climbing gear, whether it's skis or ski boots, bindings, I can tell you that through my career, I can tell you what have been the hardest things to work on and some of the easiest things, but they've all really are, are parts of the components of the sport and equipment that, that we love, the, the sports that we love. So in the snow sports industry specifically, I was a category manager, a sales manager, a sales rep, really all the jobs that rounded me out to probably prepare me to be the CEO of Scarpa North America. I'm always really product centric in a lot of the ways that I look at the world, but um, that's because I'm a user and um, I base a lot of my decisions around my experience and the experience of the people that I'm close to that are also users, very active. And it's a great group of people. Um, the added benefit of all this is the community is phenomenal. I can't imagine a better career, honestly, and a better trajectory for, for my work and, and something that I could really contribute to and get a lot out of at the same time. So I have worked on the design team specifically for skis, boots, bindings, every imaginable product to the snow sports industry. And I spent a lot of time around the development teams, the design teams, and in the factories. My particular interest in skiing and focus is, like a lot of people who grew up in Colorado, I started alpine skiing when I was pretty young, but only because a family friend was a doctor who was able to take us skiing, my sister and I, because it was, it's as it is now, it's pretty expensive for a lot of people. It's not necessarily accessible for a lot of people. Through that experience, um, and because of the economic issues, I became a Nordic skier and a cross-country skier, and eventually a Telemark skier, which was backcountry skiing in the 70s. And my first 
shop. My first business was called Telemark Ski and Mountain Sports. My little guide service was Telemark Ski Guides. That was some of the greatest years of my life and career. So, so do you still do you still telly today? Definitely, yeah. yeah? Definitely. Like, what what percentage of your days are telly? Well, I went out the other day with our sales meeting, and I started. I have a strategy here, so I started going uphill. I started on the on some schema boots going uphill, and then I tallied for a while. And then by the time my legs were really getting tired, I was standing up on and skiing around on my heavy metal Mistral XTs and the full kit. And I try to telly. 25% of the time. And the reason that it's so important to not lose that. And, and um, I love the community, the, the, the vocal minority, as I like to refer to them. <laughs> and we're still very much in the telemark business. A lot of people, uh, you hear all sorts of comments about what's going on in the telemark business, but I'm looking at the numbers and the sales and talking to the consumers and really trying to be inside looking out. Last year, when I, I tried to do an annual backcountry trip to Canada, a lodge trip, and uh, two of the people on the trip were tele-skiers and super good tele-skiers and probably people you know. <laughs> and um, we're constantly thinking about, we're, we think about tele-boots tele as much as we think about AT boots or climbing boots or rock shoes. It's still very much a part of our world. We realize we only, we take it somewhat as a kind of a responsibility as, as well. And in the, the preservation and, and the, the evolution of, of that style of skiing, I still think it's one of the freest, most, how would I describe it? Creative kinds of skiing you could have. It's kind of like surfing in a way, longboard surfing. It's a ride that you will not, you can't duplicate. Maybe a snowboard if you're a good snowboarder. But it's a really interesting ride and a great turn. And in the right conditions, it's amazing. So, yep, that's still that once a teleskier, always a teleskier, I think <laughs> so. Well, I, I've gone teleskiing once in my life. My dad bought a setup years ago and I stole it from him one day and went to A Basin and was skiing. We were skiing basically like rock hard moguls on like someone else's telly setup, I had an awful time. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably not the way to learn, you know? I think that, uh, but you know, it's interesting because in talking to the telly community, a lot of people, um, we've come to this, uh, our little group, our, our little cadre of telemark skiers and thought leaders really, we've, we realized that teleskiing is very much alive and well, but it is kind of in a little bit of a dormant state. And part of it is because of the technology that we've brought to it. But part of it is also because we don't have enough, um, there are not enough access points and resources for education, for demo rental and things like that. So we're putting a lot more thought into how do we create access. It's been really fun teaching people how to teleski. That was one of my jobs. I was a PSIA um, instructor at one of my points in my in my career and tele as well as alpine and Nordic. And um, it's really fun to watch people get it. And it is a little bit like surfing in that way or powder skiing. But it's... Um, it's still an important part of the U.S. Uh, ski and and snow sports community and and trends, and it's probably been most um, affected by alpine touring and the efficiency of alpine touring. So Telemark was the way to ski backcountry, and through the evolution of alpine touring equipment, 
it's become the more efficient model. Plus, most people know how to alpine ski. And tele skiing takes a little more time and, and commitment to learn, as you were saying. Yeah. <laughs> but it is very accessible, especially with the gear that we have now. But the bindings are evolving very quickly. And that's an interesting trend to watch as we see the norms of 75 millimeter NTN. And now we're, we're seeing this tech, teletech kind of norm emerging. So it's kind of leading edge of, I mean, it's the wild west, honestly, telemark skiing. And that's part of what I love about it. It's, it's really raw passion and innovation that kind of drives it. So, um, Stay tuned. It'll be interesting to see what happens there. Well, maybe someday you'll have to take me out and show me how to properly, <laughs> properly. We'll get all you guys out for a session <laughs> so we can represent better. I think that sounds like a plan. <laughs> so, you know, my career, to your question, my, my career ended me at, we were the distributors of Scarp at, at Black Diamond. And for mostly for personal reasons, I wanted to move back home to be with my parents as they grew older and raised my family here. I'm from Colorado. And so I made the big change, which is a tough change to make when you love what you do and where you're working. But I, I resigned from Black Diamond and I came back to Colorado mostly for family reasons. I became a rep again, which was fun, but probably wasn't and, and lucrative, but it wasn't really fulfilling my my inner calling to do something bigger and something better. And in 2005, the, the Perasotto family, the owners of Scarpa, who are friends for many years, approached me about an idea of starting the wholly owned subsidiary for Scarpa in North America instead of using distributors. And they asked me if I would if I would be willing to help them do that and to join forces with them. So in 2006, I did. And um, actually, January is my anniversary month. So it's almost been 14 years, I guess, uh, 13 years. So it's my career, but it's also something that I, I consider part of my life in, 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 a, in a really good way. So I've worked with, the, with Scarpa for almost 30 years now, which seems like it really flew by. Probably the most significant thing about that that length of career in a focused area like the snow sports industry is uh, I think of Gladwell's book, The Tipping Point, and this, this rule of the 10,000-hour rule. And at a certain point, just exposure to things, to the evolution of a sport. When I started telemark skiing in high school uh, in the 70s, the people that I was was really paying attention to and skiing in the backcountry really were, you know, um, Lou Dawson was a very influential person. Paul Raymer was very influential. The the great telemark skiers, uh, especially the local people, Artie Burroughs, and I was in awe of these guys. And I was a few years younger than them. And luckily, they they allowed me to hang out with them and absorb <laughs> their their awesomeness but and they instilled a set of values in me that is some people might uh and and certain sensibilities that some people might kind of consider old school now but whatever it was you were sliding on on snow it was all relevant and it the best athletes, snow sports athletes could pick any tool out of the quiver from Nordic skis to a snowboard and ride them. And I just thought that was brilliant. But where 
where it all came together for me, just like in climbing with alpinism and skiing, it was backcountry skiing. That was the place where I realized this will take every skill I've ever learned and ones that I haven't learned yet. And it became a nirvana for me. You know, it still is. My, my week-long ski trip to a lodge, some undisclosed lodge somewhere in the British Columbia or wherever it is, it's sacrosanct to me. It's really important. Even though I'm skiing for fun with the people I want to be around, I'm always thinking about it working and product and everything else. My best day is great friends, great place, great snow. I'm, that's really, you know, kind of the best place I can think of being at any given time. So... Yeah, that's kind of a you know, quick quick run through my career, I guess. In addition to your success professionally and in the ski industry, you're a pretty accomplished mountain person in your own right. Do you want to maybe pick out one or two moments or objectives or accomplishments that really stand out for you in, in, in the mountains? Yeah, I'd like to. I'd love to. And and the first things that come to my, my mind are the first events, trips that I took to special places. One of the most uh, important trips to me was when I, when we were in the early 80s, we wanted to make a traverse from the Front Range, from Eldora Ski Area to Vail. We wanted to show that it was possible to do essentially a Colorado high route. A lot of people had tried to do it, but um, nobody had actually linked it together successfully. And most people were trying to do it on you know, heavy alpine touring gear. And we came up with this theory, if we had lighter weight telemark gear and we could tour faster, because there's a lot of high alpine terrain that's relatively flat. Anyhow, that trip was called, we call it the Colorado Grand Tour. I ended up doing it with Glenn Randall, Peter Metcalf, Roanne Miller, and myself. Seven days, 100 plus miles. Uh, we crashed on our friends' floors in every one of the ski towns. That was a trip. That was a, a great adventure. Trips to me that are most memorable were the adventures and, again, the people I was doing it with. But it was also a breakthrough to show that you could actually do that. And um, this is when Bertha Pass still had a ski area on top. That <laughs> <laughs> was a great moment. I think the other trips that really stick out in my mind are um, my first trip expedition, ski expedition to Alaska. That's pretty daunting, getting off a plane and looking at 7,000 feet of vertical and feeling really small and insignificant. Those were come-to-Jesus moments. The other, the other thing that pops in my mind when you ask that question wasn't a great day, actually. It was one of those days you really hope you never have. And it was a day that myself and a, a huge group of my friends got caught in a massive avalanche event in Canada. Yeah, I have to say that that day changed me forever, and it made me a lot more aware of what I was doing and the risks it that were inherent to that. And um, it was part of my maturation as just like in climbing, um, coming close to that. I would say the greatest accomplishment I have is like a lot of us at this point in our lives is staying safe. And I think that's something that everybody needs to really think about all the time. And no matter how, where you are in your career, because if you let your guard down for a minute, there's a lot of things out there that can get you. And the backcountry skiing is definitely one of those things. So 
being safe. I, I always tell my friends, you know, have fun, try hard, be safe. That's those are the rules of the yeah. road for me. I don't know if you were out um, this past weekend skiing. So much snow for those yeah. folks who weren't on the front range of Colorado. It was amazing. Um, and a lot of people were skiing very safe. And then, you know, I saw close calls on Sunday specifically that were like, wow, I, I really wish that person hadn't made that decision and put, you know, a large group of people in danger. So, yes, yeah, it's, it's an interesting, very interesting topic and a really important one. But I think that there's a responsibility we all have to accept if we're going to be backcountry skiers, not just for ourselves, but for the people around us and understanding that if you get in trouble because of the ethics that we all practice and other people are going to come to help. And then you're, you're, it's not just about you. It's definitely not. And it's a silly way to go. I mean, I really think that learning the protocol and learning the basic rules of the road, it's really important. And I always, uh, every time I leave here on a Friday night, because everybody here is into skiing and climbing, I always tell people just really be careful this weekend. And that Friday night last week said, pay attention to what you're doing. I've been there to the places you're talking about. I know those hills. I know those those particular avalanche runs. And this is the worst condition. Heavy snow, lots of wind. Right now, Friday night, it was high at above treeline, high at treeline, and considerable below treeline. And those are the warning signs you can't ignore. So that's good. It's always good to, to keep it real, you know, really important. So it's, it's, it's all fun until it's not anymore. And that moment can happen really fast without warning. So, well, and, and, and for me, that kind of goes back to what you mentioned earlier about how backcountry skiing captured you. And a lot of that is this is going to take every bit of skill that I have and some that I don't. And that's not skiing skill. It's not how good you can get down the mountain. A lot of that is like self-restraint, like knowing yourself well enough to be, be able to say like, I am I know I'm going to want so badly to do X, Y, and Z, but to be able to, yeah. to do all those different things, the, the knowledge, the human factor, the skill, the like technical skill, all of that comes together. And it's, yeah, it really makes the sport kind of amazing. Yeah. I think two words I think of a lot, self-awareness uh, and, and self-discipline, and then being just the situational awareness you really need to have out there and live to ski another day. It, it, it's hard to look down a perfect run of powder with no tracks in it. At that moment is when your judgment is probably most taxed, you yeah. know, and you yeah. need to keep that real. And we've all been there so many times. So I've had, you know, so many experiences that I could share with you. And those experiences are what taught me. Sometimes it's just better to take the handrail down and, and wait for the next. <laughs> and um, we're, we're really, you know, we were going to talk about ski boots, but we'll last point on this that because again, talking about ski boots, we sell a lot of ski boots. Who are we selling to? We're selling to a lot of people that backcountry skiing is is pretty new. It's it's really an aspirational sport for them. And I'm so happy for that and so supportive. So like getting a new car, learn how to drive it and and how it works and how to how to work it in bad conditions and that'll that'll serve you well in the long run. So with that, <laughs> let's, ski talk boots. Ski boots. let's talk ski boots. All right, <laughs> ski boots. Well, let me give you the overarching uh, kind of my high level on ski boots. 
This is kind of what I've come to realize over a lot of years of working around footwear, but specifically ski boots. Ski boots are the only thing that your body actually comes in contact with in your ski system. First thing to remember, the comfort and interface of your feet to your ski boots are the, one of the most important things. Sure, you got your gloves and your helmet and the grips of your poles, but most skiers, especially professionals, when they get on a plane, they have their ski boots with them because they know if my ski boots get separated from me, I'm I'm in trouble because I can kind of fake the rest of the stuff and put a kit back together, but my boots are really personalized. The second thing I'd say is boots are part of a very important system of three components, a boot, a ski, and a binding. And a lot of focus when you're building a system has to be on that boot binding interface, which we'll talk more about, I'm sure, later. And and I think that investing in boots is, and I'm not saying this because we make boots, but it's really an important piece of equipment to focus on for the reasons I just mentioned. You'll know uh, if you have a bad boot or good boot fit very early on. And, and as soon as you slide that thing on and take a couple of runs. So take the time to really get a good fit do the research on boots, it's worth it. That's why I love your your work so much because you really go into the depth about those details, fitting the boot, you know, taking care of the boot, the differences in boots. But we make boots for, as defined by a lot of ski boot manufacturers, we try to focus on a pretty narrow set of categories. And some almost bohemian, like telemarking, but <laughs> which I love. I, I love to make fun of it because I am one of those people. And But the specifically to backcountry, alpine touring, schemo, light touring, whatever you want to call it, that's where our heads are really at. And obviously we're looking at the bigger world. We're looking uh, at the trends across all alpine, uh, but one of the hardest things to do in business, especially when you're trying to be a really high-end specialized brand, is to pick your battles really carefully. And you'll probably end up spending more time thinking about what not to do than what you should do. Because a lot of, if you're really in tune to what you, your, your main focus in work and in and, and, and product, what you should be doing is almost intuitive. If you're, if you're really paying attention to the sports, let the sports guide you, let the trends, let the users guide you, and then try to work technology around that, solving their challenges, their problems, their wants and needs. And then sometimes you just got to come completely out of left field and say, we've got this crazy idea that, <laughs> and I think you're going to love it. You know, the original F1 bellowed AT boot really began the rage. I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm bragging here, but <laughs> I just need to note that the first plastic telemark boot, some of the first original Alpine touring boots, the, the, the ski walk functions, the experimenting and developing new materials, working on the schemo trends and really putting a bellows in, in an Alpine touring boot, putting a bellows, it, making a boot like the, the NTN boots that, at one time war was what we thought was the one world, one boot solution. You could have a telemark boot that could work in an Alpine Turing boot. Little did we know what we were <laughs> what we were creating there. But one thing leads to another. And being out on that leading edge is is uh, it's a big responsibility. It's kind of scary when you're really trying to do new things. The joke we have in the industry and all my colleagues out there 
all our competitors, we're very good friends. I should say that really great friends, which makes this even better, very collegial group. And yes, we're fierce competitors, but, but we, when we need to be, but we're really quite tight. And I really like that as well. But when we first started doing some of these projects and people were coming out with their versions of it, the old joke is there's two kinds of R and D, the research and development and the rip off and duplicate. <laughs> and we run with the, we run and compete with really the the most best brands in, in the world. And so we make each other better. And that's like good competitors, ski racers or whatever. You have to train with other people that are as good or better than you to keep getting better. And so I, I really respect that. And um, I spent, I was on the S board of SIA for nine years, which I was, one of the few kind of outdoor backcountry guys, to one of the early uh, members from that segment of the industry. And I learned so much from those guys, I really did, from the, the pure play Alpine guys and how they did things and what they did. And I think we learned a lot from each other. And little did we know at that time that they would be looking at this side of the, of the market, of the industry and of the sport backcountry, because this is really where a lot of the excitement is right now. Even if it's in area, kind of backcountry style skiing or however you want to say it, like, um, you know, Whistler has a lot of that, you know, you can go to A Basin. I mean, you can be backcountry skiing inbounds. And we saw some inbounds avalanches this last weekend. So <laughs> it's the only distinction is there's a rope splitting down a hill and doesn't make it any safer because you're on one side of the rope or the other. So backcountry skills are useful for everybody. And a lot of people wear their beacons and, and pack air packs in inbounds now on a big day, which is totally legitimate. You know, skiing off the tram and jacks on a big day, you want your beacon and your pack on, right? That's just standard operating procedure these days. So we really focus on the AT market and trying to see where that's going. Um, I would say our premier family of boots and, and the number one leading boots in the North American market, the Mistral Egea family, those have been a really great success for us and have become almost iconic in a way through the generations, the different generations of Mistral Egea family. We keep kind of expanding from the, the core epicenter of that line. That family of boots in particular has such a great uh, ability to cross over and serve a lot of different skiers' needs that it's uh, it's the perfect one boot, one world AT boot. And then a lot of people, like skis, a lot of people are, are building two and three quivers now. So I've got my ski mode quiver, I've got my light touring quiver, or some variation of this. I have my pure play Canada backcountry quiver, and then I have my big mountain backcountry quiver. Again, watching what the sport people are doing and saying, well, we need to have a boot for every one of those people. Sometimes we can make one boot that'll cross over. There, there's always overlap. But the other thing about specialty products is something that does everything usually does it uh everything okay but nothing super great i think that we we really i don't want to sound like we just want to sell you more boots but we realized that if you want speed and agility uphill 
and you're willing to sacrifice the downhill performance for that to some degree, it's like this. It's I call it the continuum of compromise. So you want a really super powerful Mistrali XT, heavy metal full, you know, full ride. It's not as light. That's the con that's the compromise on that that end. You want to use an F1 instead. You're going to lose power for sure, but you'll gain you'll gain uh, efficiency through for, through the lower weight boot. The uh, Mistrali XT is 1,490 grams, and the F1 is 1,260 grams. The difference in those is really just ounces but when you put it on and go skiing it as you know oh yeah it's a big it's difference it's like <laughs> two different worlds so so well, that that brings up a really interesting point we've talked a lot in the past few weeks on this podcast specifically about this idea of a one boot quiver you know we recently put out all these ski quiver articles where each of our reviewers gets to say like ah oh, this is my one ski quiver this is my two ski quiver this is my person you know the personal quivers um but we got a bunch of reader questions asking about boot quivers and overarching ideas. Is it possible to have a one boot quiver that can go and, you know, go uphill really efficiently, but also charge in the resort? And I think I'm kind of on your side. I think that, you know, there's, there's just compromises that are always made. And if you're willing to make compromises on both ends, you can get in the middle somewhere. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on the one boot quiver. I think there's a lot of great uh, comparatives to that, but I think that you'll compromise at some point. And there's, it's the same way that you would look at your binding and your ski. Coming back to the system concept, who would try to ski on a shift uphill for their lightweight binding or, or um, a kingpin or something like that? But those guys are ripping when they're going downhill. And I think that, and they're probably getting a, an added element of security, as the Swiss say, out of their binding systems because of the, the sophistication of those systems. But we're seeing a lot more sophistication in Pentec bindings that aren't a rail style binding. I won't get into brand naming here, but you see it all over. And I'm super, I'd like to be binding agnostic and, and really accept every binding and fit every binding because we make the boots. We, sh we wanna be compatible with everything out there, unless it's just so far out there that it's not really represented as a legitimate system yet, which a lot of bindings start as actually. Sure. Yeah. But you know, the first touring binding I had, you may never have heard of it. It was called a marker M tour. It wasn't a touring binding, but you need to get on and Google some of these things. I see it on Raymer bindings, Emery bindings, Petzl bindings, everybody who made a binding I, I used it. Um, some of those companies sur survived through that AT explosion. They were almost all European. But now we have some really solid bindings out there and a large variety. So again, looking at what people are doing in other categories, skis and bindings. You know, it's, I'll use another analogy. If you want a Porsche, get a Porsche. If you want a Ford F-250, get a Ford F-250, and forget about one of them being any good at what the other one's good <laughs> at. Extreme version, but if if you look at the standard compromise in vehicles, it's the American version of the SUV. And now you've got sportier versions of the SUV, like a Porsche version or so, but they're still fundamentally an SUV. And, and I think we can we can expand that, we can morph it out, and we can spread it out a little farther to cover more ground. 
But there's going to be a continuum of, of performance compromise at some point. And somebody out there, especially the cognoscente, as we say, will call you out on that. It's like, you call this a lightweight boot? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's not an exact science. And what we'd like to do is let people customize as much as they can. The other thing is what some people consider, I see a lot of people touring in really big, heavy gear. That's their choice. And they consider that, that their touring setup. You know, a, a 115, 120 underfoot, really fat ski. Some of my, my favorite testers, none of them ski on Pintec bindings unless it's something that comes out of the marker family or, and they're really looking at those kind of bindings for the ski performance because let's face it, a pin, a standard touring binding is not an Alpine performance binding. And you'll really notice that when you start putting on 125 or 130 flex touring boots, you see the difference, you feel the difference. I think the XT is, well, the whole family of boots that we make, we're trying to give people some, some latitude, some range of use application. Unless you start talking about Alien 3.0s, those are made for one thing and one thing only. And if you want a 700 gram boot and you want it to be all carbon. Um, but again, you know, I think about mountain bikes. I think about my, I think about bicycles. You know, I got road bikes. I got cruisers now. I got gravel bikes. I got fat tire winter bikes and my downhill bike. There's nothing general about any of those. So the farther you want to take the performance level in a specific category, the more specialized you're going to have to get in the gear. That, that's for sure. We always would like to say that we have a boot for those people that want one boot. And, that's, and most people start there. Interestingly enough, a lot of people start and, and then they, they pick up another boot. Most, our research shows that most people who own one, who own a Scarpa ski boot own more than one style of Scarpa ski boot, which is an interesting data point. That's just showing that they're looking at, and it's sometimes very broad, far apart. I have an Alien and a Mistrale. That's a very, a Mistrale RS. That's a very common uh, combination. And I'm, I'm going uphill, I'm going to, to Eldora in the morning to get my fitness training in which I would be riding my bike if it was summer, but I just want to burn up hill as fast as I can in really tight clothes or whatever <laughs> they're into. And, and, then, and then on the powder day weekend, you know, it's like I'm going to put on the heavy metal and go out and, you know, shrelp some deep snow and uh, totally different setup. So I, I, I love that part of it just because I'm really into the products and we are seeing emerging categories though. I think that's really important to mention as we talk about kind of the, the more classic core boots of the Mistral Egea family. And then you look at something like the Alien, um, we're seeing an emerging category and I think it's pretty obvious in the market in this mid-weight, just like we did in mid-fat skis, it's kind of the mid-weight boot that will it tur tours and, and moves and, and has a lot of agility, lots of range of motion, lots of uh, pretty fast in the uphill. But when you really crank it all down, it's skiing down pretty well. You're, so what, what, what kind of weight range do you see in that now, weight that's, that That's anywhere from, well, the F1 is a great example of what that is. And then um, 
I'll show you. If you didn't notice, I have a, a little gift for you guys on the wall up there. I was there. eyeing it. <laughs> That's because it's Christmas time and it's holiday season. And um, so to that to that discussion, we have um, we're continuing to, to develop um, into that mid range, and that is a really interesting category. I think you guys coined one of the best quotes I read the in the last couple of years about the alien RS. This is a really kind of unique and amazing boot, what it's capable of. How can a boot that is 990 grams put out that kind of power and control? It's, it's a great question. I mean, we designed that boot to do exactly that because frankly, we were seeing our our uh, schemo racing boots just getting destroyed and <laughs> and carbon by itself is not durable it's just like your carbon bike frame you have to be really careful hopefully you're not scraping your carbon bike frame against rocks and sharp ski edges all day but that's what happens to to pure carbon boots especially schemo boots so um, going to the to the Grillamid long fiber technology, the, the Grillamid with impregnated and infused with with uh, long fibers of carbon really changed the game for us because we could get a boot that was much more durable than pure play carbon. And it got really stiff and, and made it a lot better for skiing. It's pretty unique to the to kind of certain areas of, of uh, geographic areas where we have where people tend to ski lighter boots and fat skis, the Wasatch, the Colorado, BC, you know, where you really see that light, fluffy snow and you can do things that you wouldn't probably be able to pull off in other parts of the world where they have the more maritime climate. So sure. yeah. it seems like the adaptation and the evolution is faster than I've ever seen it before. And a lot of that creativity is coming from the users, what they're putting together and what they're kind of, we used to call it the whack and dangle part of um, R&D, where it's just like, let's just take a box of parts and make something and see if it works. <laughs> Perfected in the telemark world. But but uh, for sure, that's how we got to a lot of the Alpine Touring binding setups that we have, are looking at now. And look how many Alpine binding companies and boot companies are now making products for the backcountry yeah, I, I'm going to call it backcountry because I don't know why else you would need a tech fitting in your Alpine boot if you weren't going to use it. So we've we've called it a lot of different things, but that kind of I don't particularly like the term side country, but just kind of the backcountry free ride, the people that are skiing big lines and need really Alpine performance, but still need to boot around or ride a machine or get in and out of a of a helicopter. Um, yeah, those are the people we're really trying to speak to and make good products for. Cool. So let's let's talk about some specific boots. Sure. Selfishly, I want to start talking about the Mistralia XT because I've been getting a lot of time on that boot in the past few months and uh, have have a lot of opinions on it. Overall, I'm really impressed by it. But first, let's talk about sort of where the XT fits in the line, why it exists, and a bit on the on the development process of that boot. Okay. Yeah. It's a it's a pretty simple answer that the XT is the extension of the Mistrale family, and it really was born in the in the from the idea that people need more want more than the Mistrale RS is giving them right now. More meaning more stiffness, 
maybe a little more um, just general power, lateral, as well as um, driving power. And I think that the simple changes that we were relatively simple in terms of designing ski boots that we were able to make, you know, some people would might describe it as a turbocharged Mistral ARS, but it is pretty significantly different. If you ski the Mistral ARS, it's not incremental. It's, it's a noticeable step up. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm glad to hear because oh, yeah. your opinion matters to me and my opinion is just one and, and it's really easy to get um, wrapped up in your own ideas here. So listening is really important. If you're trying to do really good design work and development work, listening is the first and most important step to that and observing. So I spent a lot of time out observing. I always ask people about their boots. They always wonder why I'm asking them. And Who is this crazy If you person? get on a chairlift <laughs> with me or in a, in a tram and you have any kind of a AT boot or anything close to that on, you're going to get questions from me. Because <laughs> I just love hearing, you know, from the, the users themselves. And it's awesome. So in your case, especially the informed and, and expert users, the boot was an extension of the Mistral ARS. The idea was simply to bring more power to it. We looked at the, and understanding that, okay, Mistral ARS is 1450 grams, the, and a 125 flex. The um, Mistral XT, my sales guys had hated if I was, they heard me trying to recite these numbers. I think <laughs> I'm right on this. The Mistral XT is 1490 grams, 130. Dav actually called it 130 plus. Which I, I would call it 130 plus also. Oh, that's great because <laughs> a whole sidebar on flex ratings, nerve wracking, super nerve wracking because everybody's so critical of it. And, and, um, all I, I dis, the disclaimers, we're just trying to give you relative sense of flex differences between our boots sure. in our line. Yeah, yeah. I spend a lot of time in ski boots. I, I am not an expert uh, alpine racer, but I know a lot of them. <laughs> and so uh, I spread the boots around and I get consensus. So, and we also think that rating an AT boot, the ski walk mechanism, it's uh, not exactly like a full plug Alpine race boot. So I'm glad to hear that though, because these are the real important data points that substantiate my, my estimations of these things, our estimations of these things. But by changing the, the cuff configuration pretty significantly, if you've looked at the cuff, you'll see that it has, um, it covers much more of the fourth, the front of the leg, it comes down lower, which changes the flex a lot. Using, of course, Grillamid, Grillamid LFT, and filling in the vents of the cuff that were on the Mistral ARS, adding a more powerful closure system at the top with the um, with the, the power strap configuration that we have. Those little things, God is in the details. So <laughs> people say, just make it stiffer, put more material in it, make the wall wall thickness more, and you'll get what you want. Yeah, but we'll gain another 300, 200, 300 grams. So we just lost, we got one thing, but we lost our most important thing. The priority was lightweight, agility, functionality in the backcountry, which means range of motion, walking around, booting around. 
you know, not just high performance skiers enjoy those boots. Workers, my so many people that I call them workers because I was a worker, ski patrolmen, uh, snowmakers, uh, hosts and, and concerees at the ski area. They love these boots because like why ski walk mechanism, lug sole, walking around, warm, comfortable. But a lot of that crowd, once they strapped them down and kicked into their bindings and started skiing, they're like, this is like a real ski boot. I think it rivals, although different, um, what we were trying to achieve in the Freedom SL. It's really very similar, very different configuration of boot, different sole norm, all those things, but the feel and the performance of the boot. The other thing I would note that is a characteristic of a lot of our boots and, and is part of built into the design uh, brief and parameters of this boot is we feel like in, in the kind of terrain we ski in a lot in the backcountry, which sometimes requires slow speed initiation, really technical terrain, places where you really need to feel everything, no fall zones where you're, you might be cramponing, you might be booting around, walking across a little ledge or something. We really feel that it's important to, to maintain sensitivity in the boot, to maintain that progressive flex for shock absorption and terrain absorption and general comfort. And so the ideas that we put around a dual density cuff, for example, that was so not to make the boot stiffer, it actually to let it remain, have some some movement in there so you could have that progressive flex so you could apply acceleration or or reduce acceleration just very subtly like feathering your boot more more sensitivity and then the the particular power strap configuration we put on there when you strap it all down and pull it pretty tight it's you know full-on power strap but it has a quick release buckle on it and it has the the booster feature of elastic so that it allows in in a hard landing or an abrupt moment of transition a little bit of extra we call it progressive flex so you're working with the boot more and it's very similar to how you'd want your hiking boot to feel or your ice climbing boot. It also gives rebound to the boot. So it's giving back to you, you know, a good bike and a nice uh, kayak, a good ski. You, you load energy in and it gives you something back. And it's kind of this exchange, this circular exchange of power in, power out. And um, you start getting in that rhythm and that really becomes your turning rhythm in a lot of ways. So... I think it's a brilliant boot, but I, I think all our boots are pretty good like that. <laughs> but I really appreciate your feedback because, you know, the thing that I get a lot, uh, again, from you and then a lot of the other reviewers is real honest feedback from skiers. And some, a lot of them take it offline and say, you know, I'm, I'm really not kidding. I really like this boot. It's one of my go-to boots. So a lot of boot choices out there. I think that if we charged in, in headlong into the alpine boot business we we would not be in our our comfort zone we we try to think about things in a different way we should be we're making a specialized set of boots here but weight is a really big deal we all know how important that is 
warmth is a really big deal. Walkability and range of motion is a really big deal. Um, those are not the same criteria that you put in a good crossover Alpine boot. Even one with tech fittings and one that you could boot around in, there's some really great boots out there by great companies right now. So um, if you're a consumer, you should be stoked. You have so many great choices. Focus on the fit. Remember to know what kind of system you're going to use before you go in to buy boots because that has a huge bearing on the boot that you want to choose for the for the system. Yeah, well, and it's really interesting. So the XT compared to the RS, I've I've skied the RS a ton. I probably have, I don't know, 150 days in that boot. And it's, it is my go-to, mostly because it fits my foot really well, but also the ski performance combined with the weight and the range of motion. And I'm, I'm a huge fan. So getting in the XT was kind of like, it was kind of, it felt a little weird for me because it was like, man, this RS is so good. Like, I really hope they didn't screw anything up. And <laughs> <laughs> we all hope that. <laughs> and the funny thing is, so one of the first things you know, I noticed when I put it on is that there's a little bit, the, the, the tongue and the overlap and the closure in the upper part of the boot is a little bit more intuitive than on the RS. Mm. The RS, there's this kind of a bunch of little plastic pieces that you got to fold in just the right way. And this, there's, there's still a little bit of that on the XT, but it's more intuitive in that sense. So I really did appreciate that. But the biggest thing that you notice going boot to boot is that power strap. Yeah. Um, the power strap on the XT is really unique. And especially in the market, there's not many people putting booster straps, style straps on, especially touring boots. And then when you have add that quick release mechanism that's on the XT, I think it really makes the power strap stand out, especially for, for people who want that really strong flex with that that kind of progressive booster strap kind of feel. Um, can you talk a little bit about the motivation behind the, the that power strap and a little bit of the of the design process? It was an extension of of an idea. It, you know, these things are so funny. When you ask about, you really want to know. We we are constantly trying crazy new ideas, and the booster wasn't a new idea. The idea of adding elasticity to the strap was not a new idea. What we realized in testing it early on and having um, the cam buckle was not a new idea. What we realized, and that was all fine. We were ready to go. In fact, the sample that um, I think is on the wall has the original buckle from the prototypes. I have one um, in the room here that has the current production buckle with the hook so you can release it. We just figured out when we were in the field, we, everybody knows what a pain it is to try to deal with your boots when you're adjusting them, especially with gloves on and things like that. We wanted to make it possible that you could you could take the strap, com, disconnect the strap completely without having to thread the buckle, uh, th unthread, thread, and yeah, unthread yeah. the buckle. Just functionality. And those are the things that would take you or most of your friends five minutes to figure out in the field. But that's trying to take the extra amount of time to pay attention to the real details of use. Like, what are the things that become honestly a pain in the bottom <laughs> when yeah. you're out there in the field? And that's one of the things, adjusting your boots. Um, we, we user interface, as we would say, I think. But we wanted it to be give you the 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 full comfort range for touring and really booting around. But when you needed to lock and load, you could pull everything down and feel like you were skiing a 130 boot and get the response that you would expect out of that kind of boot. Again, the hook added a little bit in terms of weight. It's always that compromise, but minimal compared to the functional advantage, we thought. And for that kind of skier, 
okay, they're, there's not a light setup. They're not using a light setup. It's pretty heavy duty gear. Um, the other thing that is worth mentioning on the XT is that two other things that you might've noticed in the boot, there, there are actually three different types of liners in the Mistrale family. The ride liner, which is only used in the XT, which is a little higher performance liner. Then we have the performance liner, which is the Mistral ARS and JRS, and then the tour liner, which is the Mistral ANJA. And those are suited to mostly stiffness and volume differences, comfort for the tour all day sure. yeah. comfort. But the, the big difference is uh, that we added a Zeppa, a boot board, a very thin layer of foam into the XT, which you may or may not have noticed. But if you notice that the volume felt a little tighter instead of a, more like a 99 or a 100 last, not a 101. That was actually another question I have is because it does feel, especially in the forefoot yep. and instep, more, yeah, more precise, smaller volume for sure. It's due in part to the liner and to the Zeppa, uh, we call it the Zeppa, the boot board. And actually, if I may just reach down here. Yeah, yeah. So, so for those of you listening to this podcast, you're not seeing, you're not seeing this, the, but the, the, the you, boot, this but. is the sound of a Zeppa <laughs> falling out of the boot. So inside <laughs> is this added little layer, okay. which we call the boot board. And so a, this is a pretty hard plastic, a couple mm -hmm. millimeters thick. It's thermal yeah. plastic. And it, it mostly is to take up volume. And then if you were very specific about the ramp angle that you like, or if you needed to cant your boot, this allows a, um, a boot fitter, a, a, a platform to do adjustments on. So an expectation when you get into higher performance boots and um, users that they would like to have that ability. So that's the other difference and probably one of the most un noticed differences but you know how it feels to you is what i really go on we get wrapped up in the technology all the time and that's when i want to say i think it's time to go skiing just put it on and go <laughs> skiing and uh, by the way if you're out testing boots this year and you want another little testers tip don't try too many new things at once if you're going to test new boots go on a ski and binding that you're really familiar with because Everything, a new ski, a new binding, they all have different feeling, different characteristics. If you set up on a new boot, a new binding, and a new ski, you're not going to know exactly what you're feeling. So go with what you know on two of the three components. Try to stick with only one new thing in your demo testing, and it'll make it a lot easier to isolate where you're feeling the differences and what you're feeling, actually. Just a ski testers tip <laughs> yeah no the uh the the, in, the engineer in me ch pounds that drum all the time <laughs> if, you, if you change more than one variable there's there's uh, yeah. there's no knowing <laughs> it, it, it's a it's information overload at some point sensory overload actually because it's more feeling see but it's funny I, I'd, I'd like to get your thoughts on this because so I, i've been skiing the boot and i'm, I'm not a, that big of a guy i'm like about 145 pounds and i really really like the flex on the rs one of my favorite things about it is that I can adjust it pretty easily to be pretty soft if I want it and also crank it down when, when you need it to be cranked down. The XT is really stiff. Mm -hmm. It's, it's a lot of boot. And the first few days I took it out, I realized that I wasn't really even cranking down the power strap at all. Cause I didn't need that extra like <laughs> yeah. bit. So, uh, for last week and I took the power strap off of it, by the way, it weighs about 80 grams, 79.2 mm -hmm. grams. 
And so I skied it all without the power strap last weekend. And without the power strap, it's almost the same weight as a Mistrelli RS mm -hmm. and definitely stiffer. And I've been really liking it without the power strap. Um, do you do you guys do anything like that? All the time, <laughs> all the time. I mean, if you walked in my office right now, you'd see I'd actually tried to clean it up a little bit before you guys got here. <laughs> uh, doesn't look like a CEO's office. It looks like a ski boot <laughs> design team <laughs> office because there's parts and pieces laying all over the place. And that's what I do in my spare time when I'm sick of typing on my computer. <laughs> I, I play around in the workshop and I spend a lot of time in the workshop in the, where I showed you in the distribution center where we just were, because that's where my creative juices start flowing. And I make these, we refer to as Franken boots, taking things that are various parts and seeing what it feels like. And I have a great crew of colleagues here that are all in about taking out strange looking anomalies and, and testing them. This is the idea of versatility. And what I think is really interesting about your point is, you know, a lot of people would say a Ferrari is fast because it has a, a big engine, but it's not just because the engine and it's not just the speed that matters. It's the maneuverability and the, and the um, agility. So, you know, there's a lot of things that go into that. The engine, the tires, suspension, the exhaust system, the transmission. Well, it's the same thing with the boot. What I do in a power strap can make a huge difference in how it feels to you in, and you just illustrated that. So that's where people start mixing and matching and building their own little kits. I walked you out in the warehouse and you saw the boots that we're repairing right now. Yep. Well, those are, a lot of those boots are from 2017. And they come back and one of the coolest things to do is just look at what a boot looks like after three years of use and what people have done to it to customize it. Um, the first thing you notice is all sorts of iterations of power straps or no power strap at all. The second thing you notice is how they had to adjust the shell by, you know, molding it out or something. So it's an indication of fit. And then the third thing is all the, you know, you, you you might see shims and pads in the liners and around the front of the boot. So I, I, I like going back there and just hanging out and seeing what is it that is really going on? What does a boot look like after three years? That's a real view into what we do here and how we think about what we do in general. So I'm really stoked that you like the XT because it is um, a few of the people that I really consider very thoughtful about what makes a boot feel the way it does, how it skis everything else, and who can actually articulate that, have been really, really impressed with the boot. And, you know, that makes me proud. That makes me really happy that we actually did something. I really like the boot. It's all I've been skiing on, on piste at the ski areas. That's all I've been skiing on. So when you talk about well, the one boot, one world can kind of idea, that could be my boot the limitations start coming in when you when you start talking about binding systems and binding systems are a really important and real thing to consider in your in your system really important well that um that brings up actually a really interesting point cuz i think one of the biggest points of confusion for consumers in the ski boot industry right now is binding and boot compatibility and we're seeing all these different sole norms and all different sorts of wild bindings. I know you guys have seen and, and adjusted to that with the Solomon Shift, for example. Um, but how how do you see overcoming this? Is it is it purely a consumer education issue or are there other, other aspects to it as well? The first thing is 
actually vendor education, manufacturer education, because until we can, we won't be able to, to push out a good solid message and advice to the consumer until we've all agreed on what we're doing as manufacturers. And it needs to be a higher level of understanding about this is about compatibility. It's not a competitive discussion. So the first thing I would say is compatibility of the boot binding compatibility is your number one priority when you're picking a boot. Just check that off the list first. Does this boot work in this binding? Which leads us to the question, how do I know? Well, we have standards and norms that should define that very clearly. A touring boot does not work in a pure play Alpine binding because there's a more a different configuration to the sole. The toe has more lift to it. It has a, a, a very high friction rubber, rubber sole on it, which it's too high a coefficient of friction for releaseability out of a lot of Alpine bindings. This was all pretty clear and pretty black and white at one point. <laughs> <laughs> and then came backcountry skiing and cool innovation. Let's just be honest, this is what moves us forward. Um, but we have to do it thoughtfully so we don't confuse or even put our consumers at risk here. So simply put, and I'll, I'll try to do it in the simplest way I can, because your, your local dealer, for sure, if you're buying online, this should be defined. It's noted in every product now. You're going to be dealing with an Alpine norm or an Alpine or a touring norm, let's call it. Alpine norm or touring norm. An Alpine boot is an Alpine norm. It's a very flat looking sole. It has a very unique configuration that is designed with anti-friction plates or device or pads in the bottom to help facilitate release out of an Alpine binding. And there's no tech fitting in the heel. It's not great to walk around in, and it and it not is not necessarily the boot that you would necessarily backcountry ski in. But where it starts to get confusing is now we see those boots with tech fittings in them and crossover norms like grip walk or walk to ride. These are really innovative norms and designs. But as everybody tries to line up boots manufacturers and binding manufacturers, we start to find some disconnections. So you asked about the Solomon shift. The Solomon shift is, as if for, for those of you who don't know, is a convertible binding. It can go from a textile touring binding for, for touring and going uphill to basically a cage style alpine toe configuration for skiing downhill, which should give you fully independent toe and heel release in the downhill mode where the most security is important. The confusion for some of our boots this last year was really not warranted because we meet the standard that the binding was made to, which is the touring norm. And actually that boot can work with both norms, that binding, excuse me. So if I have a 9523 touring boot and I can use that in a shift binding, I can use that in a marker uh, kingpin and then a number of other bindings out there. The limitations going back the other way into touring bindings is much less significant because if it has tech fittings in the heel and toe, it'll probably somehow it'll jam it in there. <laughs> <laughs> now he's, and we've also seen a lot of people, sorry, friends, but some of them are workers. Some of them are friends that have taken 
totally knowingly and willingly a pure play Alpine touring boot and jammed it in a pure play Alpine binding and said, I'm fine with this because I know exactly what I'm doing and I know how to adjust the toe height. And now you look at the latest introduction of the Duke. Mark has been really progressive. Solomon has been really progressive. I and mean, these are the some of the best binding manufacturers in the world for sure. And, and just just real quick, when you we talk about Mark or Duke, you're talking about the new Duke. Yes, the new Duke. Yes, yes thank that you. It will be available next Next fall. year. Yeah. Yes. Sorry. Oh, yep. man, that's probably, I probably let the cat out of the bag. Well, you guys are going to uh, hear no, about this sooner or later. We, we, we had a podcast yeah. about it weeks ago. Stick, <laughs> stick, to blister, <laughs> stick to blister and you'll know more than anybody before they know it. So um, that's correct. And so clearly this is an area where there is a lot of um, innovation going on and some confusion. My stance on the whole thing is stick to the norms. Everybody stick to the norm. Uh, whether you're a manufacturer, uh, follow the norms um, of any component. If it has to interface with another one, we have to have a universal language, which is international. The ISO norm is the definitive guideline and they don't cross over very well. Now we have more uh, options that we, so we have to even be more discriminating and careful about what we're doing. The last part about that, which is always very interesting is if, as you know, not to get too tech weenie on you and just stop me if I'm going there, but there's a number of different styles of tech fitting the toe specifically. We use DinaFit tech fittings, which we think are the best in the world. They make the bindings, they have the track record. And so that part should fit in the binding better than one that, because it was made by them. They make uh, a standard binding and a quick step in, uh, standard insert and a quick step in insert. I think that there was some concern over the quick step in insert because it actually has a little raised area that it helps you guide into a pen style, pure play pen style binding that would actually come in contact with the rollers as you were laterally releasing out of a more traditional Alpine toe, like, like, and the shift has that. That said, based on all the research from the experts and the independent testing groups, there was no issue with that. There is always some commercial components to this and competitive elements, which I really try to stay completely out of. And that's why I always go back to the norms and what what is the standards we should be building our products to and com communicating to the to the consumers. So I think that that is more or less sorted out. It was actually kind of unique, the controversy to the US, interestingly enough, because the Europeans, it's it to all of us North Americans, but they've, they're way ahead of us in some of this understanding. <laughs> and they, they build systems, they understand that interface, and maybe the average skier there has a little more knowledge. Maybe not. But the point is that we're talking to so many new school, backcountry, side country, big mountain free riders that there needs to be a whole new level of education and information available. And right now, look, most of, most of the consumers out there are getting it from you guys or getting it from media or you know some, some of the favorite blog sites out there. It needs to be printed in the boot now. It needs to be stamped on the sole, which it is. And it needs to be in every kind of collateral 
it's really a public service announcement more than, and for sure the retailers are the front lines for that, whether they're online retailers or, or brick and mortar retailers. So I've, the other thing I'll tell you is I'm never convinced of anything or believe it until I see it with my own eyes and feel it with my own skis or bindings. So immediately upon introduction, the Solomon guys were gracious enough to let me take out a pair and test them with our boots. And um, I ran them through their paces as on the bench as well as on the on the snow. And then I gave them to some of our favorite critics like Lou Dawson, who <laughs> <laughs> gets in there pretty deep. Yes. And he's really focused on one very narrow area of, of, of products and, and skiing, unlike you guys. Um, but I look at the different experts out there and try to collect the the varying opinions and but then we have to just kind of come to a point where we all agree that this is this is what we're doing and this is how we're doing it SIA is doing a lot of work on trying through the uh, ski mechanics workshops to try to educate everybody on um, the changes that we're witnessing now because it's really quite big when you think about it the guy on the bench in a back shop of a specialty ski shop those guys are putting together some really unique systems now and they need to know a lot more than they used to need to know about what compatibility is they've been on a run since twin tip skis were introduced and that job became a lot more complicated and a lot more subjective mm -hmm. so luckily we have we are moving in the right direction to bring a lot more clarity to that but i think it's a responsibility of the manufacturers to to propagate that information and for the consumers to seek it out and for the retailers to make it as available to everybody. That's it for this episode of Gear 30. Part two of this conversation will be released in January and features conversation about future plans, the Mistrali recall, and the unveiling of the mysterious gift wrap boot. So make sure to subscribe and listen next year. Thanks to Kim for the conversation, Luke Alley for producing this episode, and thank you for listening. If you're enjoying these Gear 30 episodes, please spread the word to your gearhead friends. Be safe out there, and we'll talk to you again next week.